we're here. Episode right. six of the punt. Uh, long year, but um, we're going to get there nearly Christmas time. You, you ready for Christmas, James? As ready as you can be, I guess. It's uh, Anyway, it's great to, great to be here and great yeah, to see the day. I formally introduce you. We've got James Harron here today, Bloodstock agent, um, one of the go-getters in the game. We've, we've spoken to jockeys and race callers and trainers and everything. So I wanted to finish off the year talking to someone who's in the breeding game because it's such an important part of our industry. Um, and yeah, you have a super interesting story. I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit about it. Um, yeah, and also I've got Adam here. My good friend Adam is one of the founders of Wolfden, Adam Sparrow. He's back for another podcast. Um, but yeah, sorry, uh, sorry to cut you short, but um, just to get going, do you want to give us a bit of a background about... Um, I guess, where you grew up. I, I presume you didn't grow up in Australia, is that right? Yeah, no, that's correct. Grew up in Northern Ireland. And, yep, Northern um, Ireland, right. Northern Ireland, Northern yeah. So Ireland. just in a place just outside Belfast called Carrickfergus. Um, yeah. And, you know, didn't wasn't too much of a horsey family at the time. Uh, my auntie was actually quite a big breeder of eventers and, and uh, equestrian-type horses and had a great interest. And we all went horse riding as kids, as you know, as you do, and as an activity and we all took a, quite a good interest in that and, and uh, yeah started riding horses from the age of about five six seven years old and got quite into it did a lot of local show jumping and and, and dressage and eventing and, and and really just at a, a fun level and became more and more interested in it but your parents had no you had no history of racing um no not not directly at that time and um eventually my father actually bought a few mares later on in life he, he started horse riding at age 50 right and uh and bought a few brood mares and 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 really enjoys you know just having a breeding with a, f a number a small number of brood mares and um and and yeah that sort of probably triggered the 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 movement from from sort of the fun riding part to, to being a bit more interested in it as a as a potential career path yeah so this is what sort of when you're 15. Yeah, well, when I was when I was 15, I was very fortunate. I mean, nearly everybody that's in in any way, shape, or form in, in the industry now in horse racing or breeding in Ireland went through a Coolmore at some point in time. It's just such a huge beast. Yeah. And they're you know it's wonderful um, training ground. Yeah. And and they're very um, open to having young people come through. So on my school holidays, I'd go down and work with the work with the foals and 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 work. Uh, you know, have a proper job there through the so summer. You, you were already fully in love with horse racing by high school, in a high school. Yeah, I mean, I left school when I was sixteen. I left school early and um, moved out of home and moved to uh, Enniskill uh, in County Fermanagh, where they had an agricultural <laughs> college and they were offering a course in equine business mm -hmm. type thing. Um, and it was good. It was a it was a good little stepping stone in between leaving school. I was I was very keen to know what I wanted to do. I wanted to get out into the industry and into the game and. And go big too. Like, did you know I'm gonna, I'm gonna be? Were you always driven to be a big player in the game? Because you, a lot of people might be like, I love horse racing. I'm just happy. I don't, I don't see myself becoming a, a big player in the game. But were you always very determined, even at that young age, being like, I want to make a, a big impact on this game. Oh, look, I've, I've always felt like I've been very ambitious and um, yep. and, and I I'm work hard and you know I, I enjoy work. I, I loved getting out and working, and, and it's probably where school didn't. You know, I didn't love school. I wanted to get out and work and uh, and and progress in that in that sector. And and um, yeah, the college was good. We did a lot of work experience, a lot of placements, which was great. Got to work with different people, and I was doing a lot of riding in national hunt yards back then. Um, when you can ride, you're always welcome to open arms into yards, and it does open a few doors. And 
and uh, and that was great. And um, when I left college, I went back and, and worked with a, um, a gentleman called Paul Shanahan, who's mm-hmm. who's one of the one of the greatest minds and operators uh, in the world. Um, very closely associated with with Coolmore and does a lot of their buying and managing. So is, is he a bloodstock agent? He he's a, a big breeder stroke um, advisor agent. So he he's been working with the the Coolmore team for a, for a long time, and he's got his own. He have a lot of horses on his own now, and, and breeds a lot on his own. So he, he's just a very, very big operator, and I worked for him for for some time. And got an opportunity. They said, "Would you like to travel with the company?" And you know, you, you're at that age to have a look around. Travel with Coolmore. With Coolmore. Yeah. Uh, whether it be it was uh, what was on offer was America or Australia. What year is this? This was. Um, Got to get this right now. It's <laughs> moving very fast. Uh, hmm. We're talking about. I was. I was. 17, 18, 19 years ago. And, uh, Very early 2000. Yeah, we're nearly 18, 18 years that ago. That when Maccabi Davis started winning Melbourne Cups. That's right, I was here for that last one, I reckon. Um, and the, the option was America or Australia, and everybody was going to America. And for some, I'd always had a bit of a, always looked at Australia from Ireland and thought what a, what a wonderful country it looks like. And so I decided to do Australia. And it was the best thing I ever did because obviously, What's happened in Australia over the last 15 years in our industry has been extraordinary, and uh, and I love the country, and I think the people are are very similar. I think it's just been home from home for me. Mm, brilliant. Okay, so you arrive out here with Coolmore, and you're what 18, 19, or something. That's right. And you never went back. No, well, I I came for it was a three month gig, uh, which sort of worked in with the visas to some degree as well, and I came looking after the to help with the Easter yearling sale, so as a handler of the horses. And um, so did a preparation at, at the farm in Jerry's Plains and um, and then went to the sales. And after the sales, I just inquired, as, would it be possible to work with a trainer just to go and look in the yard for two weeks for a bit of work experience before I went home again? And that was Gay Waterhouse's mm-hmm. yard, uh, which of course, Gay, another brilliant person, uh, introducing young people into the game and, and developing them. And three days into the job, she pulled me aside and she said, I want to offer you a job. And I said, okay. And she goes, you can, I know you want to work the sales and everything. And I said, no, I would, I would love to do that. And she goes, okay, you can be my assistant, but I need you to here every morning at 3.30 at the track. And you know, you gotta be part of the team. And I said, no, done. And she said, I like it. I like a man that makes a quick decision. And, I, and, and that was it. That and was so when you, were you her assistant in all aspect of what she does or were you her assistant for purchasing horses and going to the sales and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I'd worked with her in the morning. I'd, I'd you know, get in, muck out a few boxes, uh, ride a couple of horses out to the middle, um, clock horses with her from the tower. Um, so really brilliant. Because I didn't... Yeah, so you learned a lot about the game. The, I didn't know the, anything the about... training game. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Australian racing to me was very foreign. And, you know, when at the time we had, you know, probably 250 horses in work and they're coming at you in the dark. And you have to understand what they are and learn all the brands, and it was it was brilliant. And really. She was airborne then; they had some. They were good Amazing. horses. That's like Grand Army and that's right. I've rode him Hero, all those kind of like she would. They were winning everything back then, weren't Spot they? Spot on. Yeah. And you know, Piero came through yep. a bit later. Um, yep. No, it was a it was a fantastic years, and she was brilliant with her time. And yeah, so did a year with Gay, and then basically went back out, went back to Ireland, got an interview at Coolmore and they sent me back to Australia to work in the nominations and sales team. Did that for a few years and then went out as a bloodstock agent with Hubie de Berg, 
who's yep. based in Ireland and he covers a lot of countries and we worked together for a few years before setting up myself yep. 10 years ago. So yeah. And then so you sort of, I don't know whether it was a bit of luck or, but it seemed as though you had a bit of luck with one of the first horses you bought, which was Fox Wedge, um, right at the start of that uh, Fastnet Rock kind of wave of everyone wanted to buy Fastnet Rocks and you were the one of the first ones I had. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you came around to buy Fox Wedge and to me and other people, it just seems like it was the first purchase you made and it was a lucky one. I'm, I'm sure that's probably not what happened. But and you bought it for the Bateman family as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Bateman family have been prolific in, in, in my career and life. And um, it was it was at Coolmore when I was doing the nominations and sales and helping with the cards. When I say helping with the cards, people might come down and want to inspect your yearlings and we'd fill in the cards and put on the put on the, the show for them and meet them, etc. And I met the Batemans through that period and we kept in touch. And when I went out as an agent, we um, we said we'd, we'd keep keep in touch. And he I, I pitched a few things to the late Edmund at the time and he, he was very busy with work. And he said, look, just let me know when you're back in the country, you know, keep in touch. I've just got too much on at the minute. Mm. And um, I flew back for the Easter yearling sale and just called him. And uh, I was very nervous, as you would be, and he was... Uh, Had you ever purchased a horse for clients before this? Uh, yeah, on a, sm on, smaller, on a smaller scale. Yeah. Um, but no, this was probably more the foray out as an agent, so it was, it was really st starting to stamp yourself. And uh, yeah, Edmund, I said, I've, I've seen a filly that I, I think you should come and look at. And he said, oh, is, this, is the sale on? I said, yeah. He'd been that busy with work, and um, he popped out to the sale with his wife, Belinda, and he... He fell in love with the filly, um, and that was a filly called Georgette Silk, a flying spur filly. And he said, all right, well, just give me a call when she's in the ring. And that was, uh, we bought her. And I remember I couldn't, back in the days, we used to sign the docket. Um, now it's computerized iPad. I, I could bear, I was nearly, you know, I think my signature yeah. would have covered the whole page. And what, did, was, what did you pay for I her? was shaking that much, 730,000. Wow. That's a lot for a, a first up bloodstock. <laughs> it it was, and we were again, we were bidding against um, Angus Gould, who was on behalf of the Angus Sheikh Mohammed. Sheikh yeah. Hamdan. Yeah, Sheikh Hamdan. Yeah. So you don't want to, usually you don't come off uh, too well <laughs> when you come up against them. But we got the filly. She won the wooden stakes and um, she got herself a, a ticket to the Golden Slipper, and the Golden Slipper was Edmund's holy grail and, and, and mine, and, and still is mine. And um, and uh, yeah, so getting the run, and we had a day out, and she ran she ran badly, and I was so deflated. I felt like a opportunity was blown, and it was very close to Slipper to the the, sale, the Easter sales back then. It used to be mm. you know, a few days later, and on the Sunday, everyone used to come out. It was Easter Sunday usually, and. A lot of the owners would come out and you'd show them the horse, what what you liked or if they were selling and have a bit of lunch and have a chat. And Edmund said, um, when we dropped, got back in the car, he said, um, I'll see you tomorrow, you better show me a couple of horses. And I thought, okay. This is a year after. This was just after Georgette Silk had run badly. Yeah, yeah. but so it's a year since you purchased her. So we're That's right, yeah. In, yeah, a year on, yep. yeah. Yeah, so we, we went to the, so I, I said, okay, great. I think I'm still, I'm still hanging in there. And uh, that was the year we, we bought two horses and it was it was Fox Wedge yep. and Satin Shoes. Yes. Um, and it was, you know, that was just taught me so much about about the game and about, you know, your low moment. He was, he said, no, no, we've done well. We've got it. We, we got into the slipper. We won a stakes race. 
let's keep, you know, we'll get stronger. So it was a great lesson and, uh, and that really launched us. You know, Satin Shoes today is still a foundation mare for the Burton so Did family. you only buy two horses? Did James Heron Bloodstock only buy two horses at that yearling sale? Yes. Satin Shoes and Fox Wedge? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I know. And I, know I, I wish you could do that every year, but uh, no, it was, a, it, was, it was amazing, yeah. It's the same, any, anything to do with punting, when anyone has their first ever bet, it's always a winner. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, it's, you always get that, the, the way the game sucks. You mean, did Satin Shoes win a group one? I know that obviously Fox Wedge did. She, she won the Silver Slipper yes. and it's was third in the Coolmore. So she yep. was, and she's, she's produced beautiful, beautiful foals, been a very successful mare. So she's, mm -hmm. she's still around. And um, yeah, we, we sold Fox Wedge to Stud um, after he won uh, in the William Reed. Yes. So, yes. so that, that, that really launched us and kicked us off. Was he one of the first um, Fastnet Rocks to go to Stud? He would have been, yeah. 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 It's rare that horses create so much hype um, Fastnet Rock did, you know, like I know uh, Dane Hill obviously did it, Reduce Choice did it, Fastnet Rock did it, you know, when they just, everyone wants to buy them and the, you know, the people pay anything for them. Has there been any horses since Fastnet Rock that have been created that kind of um, excitement in the sales ring? I, I suppose, I suppose Snitzel's probably that, that, that horse now, you know, he's, he's, they're, they're getting older, these guys, um, but... Snitzel's as old as Fastnet Rock, isn't he? Yeah, and he's, yeah. but he, you know, he's been ultra consistent and, and, and produced a lot yeah, of... He's been an amazing size. Very, yeah, yeah. He's, he's broke Here quite a few records. Oh, I'm mm. Invincible's the new kid on the mm. block, I suppose. Yeah, and, and I think, I think to, um, you know, you go to the sales ring and, and between those few stallions now, they've, they've really carried that. I mean, Snitzel carrying that downhill line on, obviously it was, it was Redoots and Fastnet Rock exceeding Excel. Um, I'm Invincible's bringing, a, a, you know, an outcross bloodline to the table and obviously been amazingly successful. Um, came from different, completely different paths. Mm. One came out of a, being a bit of a star on the track in Fastnet Rock and, and starting at a big fee, you know, starting at the 50,000. I'm Invincible came from yeah. humble beginnings of $8,000. So it's... He's really earned his way, hasn't he? Yeah, no, yeah. It's, so it's, it's amazing where they can come from. And... I, I presume that Fox Wedge was hugely influential on you being able to set your business up. Did it? Did everything change after you had those couple of horses in that very early period? Yeah, look, it's it it really was massively significant, and um, you know I've always been very interested in the stallion market and the colt market, and that was um, you know gave us the confidence to really yeah. get stronger and drive harder into it. We we were lucky enough to get Wanjina you know, not not too far after that as well. Which the Bateman owned, owned whole, so, like wholly, and uh, he was syndicated again. So between those two colts, it, it really it set us up a lot in terms of um, in their their portfolio and how we drove forward. And, and it really, you know, was those sort of results that made us think about putting together a partnership and and expanding on on the, in that space, um, which which we did, and and um, and that's been sort of what's what I've been most busy at doing. And that, that's um, is that, it's called a Colts partnership, is it? Yeah, it's is just our, our Colts partnership. It's been been running for eight years, seven years, and uh, and still going strong. Yeah, it's it's been it's been really good. It's uh, it's it's actually just the great part about it now is we're we're getting horses that we've been involved with from the beginning, like Capitalist, and and you know their their progeny is now starting to run and, and do well, and so you're getting that sort of that that sort of trailing. Commissioned. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's for it's, want of a better term. It, yeah. What what we tend to do is we'd, you know, sell down equity in the in the in the horses once they've reached a certain level where they're attractive to a stud farm, 
and they'll come in and buy buy equity as much as you like, uh, and we'll keep equity. So a lot of people in our partnership are breeders. So you take money off the table, they'll go to stud, and then we'll breed to them and, and, and be part of that whole process. So so the, 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 it takes a few years for that to come back yes. around and come through, and, uh, and that's starting to happen now, which is great. And we're obviously we're very excited about King's Legacy as well, which has just got his, his first foals in the ground. So it's, um, it's a long process, mm. um, but we get to enjoy racing some really lovely horses in, in the top races. Um, and then obviously be part of that journey through, through the stud as well. So it's, uh, it's really, really enjoyable. And we've got a, an amazing group of people that, that have supported it from day one. And is it just one group or do you have different groups of people? Like is it? Just one, just yeah, one, one, one group. Just yeah. one group and, and um, yeah, we've, we've had, a, you know, amazing, you know, they, uh, there was a big leap of faith in the beginning and, and an amazingly loyal group of people. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, space which has become very competitive yep. i mean over the last 10 years it's just amazing how the industry has grown and developed and sophisticated itself and and it's a bit like what you guys do in in, in punting not that i know much about that but i always listen to people talking about the edge and, and how the how hard it is to keep getting the edge and and the way australia is doing things from a you know primary level at, where they're breeding good horses now they're rearing good horses you know we've got fantastic operators in terms of their preparation for the yearling sales. They're doing everything right. So it's giving the horses every opportunity um, to be at their best. And then the education process, the breakers, you know, the riders, the stables. So it's, it's, it's come an amazingly long way. Mm. And, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a great space to be in. The, the demand for the product afterwards is, is, is grown a lot because um, the stud farms need stallions and it's not easy to get them. And a lot of them aren't successful you know they go to stud they can have all the booms in the world on them they can have all the record and you can think it profiles up perfectly and it just sometimes just doesn't happen mm. and uh, there's no explanation to it but so they keep need to keep renewing and refreshing and because uh, when they do get one it's it's what runs their business for the next 10 to 15 years yeah right so that's interesting yeah and i guess it's the same with your Colts partnership you only need to get a few good ones to keep you're not going to hit every year, are you, obviously? No, no, it's exactly right. I mean, we, we generally target around sort of 10 to 12 yearling colts, 10 to 15 yearling colts a year. Um, so it's not a huge number. We, we do focus more on the middle to high end of the industry where we, we, we look for that horse with a profile where if it is good, we, we do get a big value add. It is a big multiplier uh, in terms of the sell down and also a horse that we can get excited about sending you know, really good mares too and, mm. and support them heavily. So um, so that's sort of where we play in the in that sort of market. And um, we, you know, my biggest job would be to, to make sure that we're not just dusting capital. So, mm. you know, selling down horses that aren't going to get to that next level. Um, we sell quite a lot to Hong Kong. We've, yep. had, we've had a good good relationships of selling over there. Are you pretty ruthless? Like, do you are you not afraid to... So do they have to be performing basically group one level right to be to stay in the in the Colts partnership thing? Yeah? Because if they're not if they're not gonna be group one winners, then they're not any real value as a cult. No, well that's that's right. I mean, you know, first and foremost it's important to us uh, the horses are going to the right home afterwards. I mean, that's a huge a huge thing. And um, we've developed great relationships with with people both domestically in Australia and and also internationally where they'll they'll buy these horses from Hong Kong. They know there's plenty left in the tank. We've had a really good results with selling them over there. And 
all our owners follow those horses and cheer for them every time they run and it's mm. it's you know their success is our success in terms of continuing those relationships and also here in australia i mean they've done an amazing job with the domestic market where country racing is so strong and mm. with horses that are you know they're just clearly not going to cut it at, at the level we need them to where they can still go and win a lot of races and prize money for for other people mm. which is which is fantastic and the horse is getting a good home and, and getting a next a next start but we do have to be ruthless um in terms of understanding that we use mark sheen as a form um, expert to help us be a bit independent uh, in terms of his evaluations of, of horses and placements and things because we can be a bit too close yep. you know you fall yep. in love with it as a yearling yep. you, you always want it that the thought that it's going to be a bit better than it might be and on the flip side uh you know choosing races where we're going to qualify or or, or you know put value onto those those horses that, that need to be traded on so it is quite a big process um you know but it's you know the most important thing is to sort of understand what you've got get the right relationships with the trainers you get in terms of getting the feedback that you can use to to, to then make those good decisions yeah and so you must talk to mark sheen quite a lot then is sort of a, is it a daily thing and beyond the colts does he also look at i think i read somewhere that he looks at your other horses and helps you place them and also the trainers place them and stuff is that right yeah we just we just get marks like he just he mark sends us through his reports and thoughts on our trials um and races and uh and then just any questions outside of that you know we might be looking at dual normed in a couple of races and he'll pick he'll pick where he thinks so uh -huh. yeah he's very very good at it very astute very <coughs> astute watching trials as well yeah. mm. he'd be one of the most astute people i've ever met him i've known mark a hell of a long time he's yeah. always been a superb judge yeah, yeah. no I've got, look i've got a lot of respect for him he, he's he comes he, from a racing family. See, his father was a jockey and his grandfather was a trainer. You know, the, mm. his third generation. Yeah. Been you'd, around horse racing all his life. You, you, you could go to the trials and you've, you've talked to the trainer, you've talked to the jockey, you've watched mm. it, you've seen the horse, and you come back and there's a report from Mark and you, you'd swear he was in the room. Yeah. yeah. And how yeah. he assesses things, he sees yeah, it all very clearly. Yeah. yeah. He's, as good as, as I say, he's as good as judges I've seen. Yeah. And, and a great race call, too. Was yeah, it was fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. Amazing. When I, so I first came to the track in 1997. And he was one of the people that were really respecting the ring. He, he, like when he came in the ring, everyone would be like, watch what he's doing. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. Which was, was he's been respected since the early 80s. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and Dean Lester, does he help you as well? Yeah, so um, any horse we've got in Melbourne, we've been, um, we've been getting help from Dean because Mark's very focused on New South Wales. And uh, Dean's been super. He, that's been a sort of new relationship over the period, last couple of years. And, and again, looks at things big picture program type of view um very impressed by mm. him also and it's just it's a it's an area where you know we just need that expert opinion and uh they bring something something different to the to the to the mixing melting pot and uh no it's been good it's mm. been very um it's been interesting too you learn you learn from listening to these these people have been around for a long time and they've been you know the fact that they're still here doing it tells it tells a story yeah, it's all about survivorship isn't it well, they right. have a neutral opinion too because they're looking at you know you want to like trainers always like to think their horse is going to win the race and jockeys will think their mount's going to win whereas form students like mark sheens and dean lester have a very open opinion of things so mm. they're not focused on that one they can give you a, an opinion of the whole thing 100 percent. yeah know. absolutely we, yeah. we, we racing people have a tendency to get fall in love with their own horses and trainers do they all do it 
it's hard not to. It's it's uh, and and you know everyone's. If you're not a glass half full in the in the, in the racing business, it's a <laughs> it's a hard it's a hard life. Yeah. So, um, so Magic Millions is in what two or three weeks from now. Are you? Is this the busiest you are this period now? Yeah. It's it's you know obviously this sort of week gets pretty quiet. Everyone's because of Christmas just dies down yeah. this week. But it's been a very busy period leading up to this week in terms of catching up with investors and catching up with owners and trainers and just getting organised. It's, it's we'll leave for January. Uh, sorry, leave for Magic Means on the second of January. Yep. And inspections will start on the third. Yep. And we've you know, there's twelve hundred horses in the catalogue. It's there's a lot going on that week. Um, will you look at every horse? We'll look at we'll look at the bulk of everything we do we will take out some stallions where you know we, we just don't have any int- you know they might have just not been successful yep. and mm. therefore it, it, you know there's no point in us taking the time to look at them and what's your team at the magic millions who who yeah when you inspect all these yearlings and the decisions you make on behalf of your clients is it just you or do you have other people as well yeah you no don't have to name them you can just tell me how other people no are. no I'll look ultimately uh you know i'll make those decisions but i've got a you know brilliant team and, and Anna Ryan and Stephen Heath who, who work very closely with me and and they'll be up at the Gold Coast with you yeah we'll inspecting we'll, yearlings as well yeah so we'll get around together um they'll make sure I see everything we'll get it all every all the data is put into computers it's all made you know done as professionally as we possibly can can you talk about the data being Just a punting show people are you know, the, the lifeblood of punting is, is data, especially if you're trying to do it at a professional level. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how data analytics transfer into the breeding game and, and, and sales and stuff because it's just another marketplace as well, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's probably not as, um, you know, sophisticated as, as the a level at which you guys would be looking at it at in terms of your, you know, how deep your algorithms and things would run. But we, I mean, we do have statistics on a number of things which are important. So, you know, looking at the farms um, where the horses were bred and reared um, is becoming a very interesting space. Uh, there is no question in my mind there is farms performing extremely well consistently over a period of time. And it tells you that they're doing things, uh, you know, in terms of feeding, in terms of their paddocks, in terms of their, their management from the day one. Um, can I just? Very well. Would you go? Do you often go against what you would presume? Like you would think that oh, Coolmore would be great and Arrowfield would be great, but what you're trying to do is find value in some of the smaller farms that other people don't realise that they actually produce really good results. Because that, like, with punting, like of course Chris Waller trains a lot of winners, and you know if you keep backing him, who knows how you go? But generally speaking, you probably wouldn't do that well because every man and his dog in the pub thinks, "Oh, well, it's a Waller trained horse." He has five horses in every field. Yeah, so he like he, he sort of overbetting <laughs> a lot market. of horses. <laughs> He's overbetting the market, so it's hard to make money out of him. But what I'm asking you is, do you look for that kind of a trend as well? The stud farms that are doing well that the market doesn't realise because they don't have the big flashing lights like Arrowfield and Coolmore and stuff. No, spot do. on, hundred yeah. percent. And there is, amazingly, there is some small operations that that just do incredibly well and um you know they're probably taking the time to do every little thing they possibly can to, to produce those horses so um you know it it really does paint an interesting picture and that's going back to the very beginning of, of what should be important i mean we're we can forget sometimes we're dealing with live animals and it's it's farming and it's it's breeding and it's rearing and it's all those important things from from that mare's pregnant from how she's managed to 
getting that product through and, 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 and how they're handled, how they're managed through the preparation. You know, are they, are they boxed a lot? Are they fed up a lot and boxed a lot? Or are they allowed to be, be horses and have that plenty of time and mix with their other horses and bounce around together and, and not be wrapped up in cotton wool? We, mm. We've over the years had horses where, you know, and I hate getting the phone call, um, oh, it's just a wee bit horse shy. And, you know, you can nearly guarantee that's been an always be, looked like being an expensive, valuable um, asset. And, you you know, you can't blame people, but they've probably money cuddled that horse a little bit. It might not have just run in the group and, and been given that exposure. And, and unfortunately, you have to. You just have to treat them like animals and like horses and give them all that experience for them to, you know, give, give every chance later on. Because, mm, yeah, you want them to be pack animals, don't you? So they want to... They are a pack animal. Beat the pack. Yeah, but if, <laughs> I think what James is yeah. saying is people put cotton wool around particular horses yeah, and they're not in the pack as much and then you say they're horse yeah. shy and they don't react in a pack as what you want them to do, which is be the fastest in the pack. That, that's it. And just, just be able to, you know, bounce around together and, and you know, when you're in, obviously in races, as soon as they get into the, you know, the barriers and all this learning and they're brushing up sides and things, it's, um, it's better when all that's being done and desensitised early on. Mm. And, uh you know, so it's so it's that's that's an important starting point in terms of data going forward. Of course, you've got, um, you know, the stallions and how they're performing. You can delve into that quite deeply, and that's probably the most commonly looked at thing. Um, you can then look at the family, how the mares produced, you know, how has her progeny rated. Um, all of it's quite basic, but it's mm -hmm. it it really is things that sort of give consumer confidence in purchasing. So when you're when you're sitting down and you're saying, okay, we probably wait a huge amount on the physical appearance of the horse and how he looks and how he moves and and um and then we look at the other stuff behind that to say, all right, you know, how how confident can you get? And you know, if there's if a lot of things line up and the profile lines up, I mean I guess it's probably like you on a bet or, or whatever. If it if it really looks good, you probably apply more more money towards it, and um, and, uh, and that's that's pretty hard to look at it in terms of breaking ground statistics. There's been all sorts of stuff over the years in terms of genetical testing, um, you know, heart scores, all this sort of stuff. It it it's more of a distraction, I find. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's uh, really. You know, a lot of people got really excited about it and thought it was the holy grail and. It probably takes your attention away from from the basics that you have to do well. Hasn't really found its place. Mm. Mm. And what I find interesting is that people like you um, at sales can tell what a horse is going to sell for within tens of thousands of dollars. Do you have? Do you sort of go through the whole sale and be like, that that horse will sell for one hundred and fifty. That'll sell for four hundred thousand. And generally speaking, are you pretty much pretty accurate in the way that you price horses? Oh, look, it, you know, you, you do. I mean, it's well, I live and breathe it. You know, like I, I've, I've gone through the catalogue, you know, a hundred times. I've got one in the office, one beside my bed, one. Not like the Bible, the one isn't is. it? Uh, they look like the Bible as well. Yeah, the and, and, and you, you, you know, I really enjoy it. And you love it. And it's, it's, it's what you're passionate about. So, you know, the. You do all the reading of the catalogue then, and then we put all our all the numbers and what horses make into the catalogue, and then you read it for another two weeks after the sale. So, you just become it becomes sort of half second nature and what what things should make, and um, and you'll get close. I mean, on a on a rising market like this, you can get big surprises too. Um, yeah. 
you know, you can be, you can get it wrong, and um, hopefully it's not when you're trying to buy one. What's your feeling? Because last year was a record year, right? It was crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. We've we had literally a a record year across the world. Yeah, every auction mm. worth talking about. It was quite extraordinary. Do you feel like it'll be down a bit this year? I think, I think that you know, I think it's going to be very solid. Yeah, um, I think it'll hold pretty firmly. Um, there's a lot of optimism within the industry in terms of the prize money. Mm. Through COVID, there was a lot of new people got interested in horse racing for a lot of obvious reasons, and we mm. saw it through the punting world. Um, I think that has really been quite a big driver. Um, and just, it's interesting, I was listening to one of your other um, podcasts about the corporate bookmakers and things. You know, when you look at how much promotion and money is being spent on promoting horse racing, um, it's, it's, it's driven this sort of excitement. We've seen mm. a lot more of young people getting involved mm. and, and a, just a broader audience. So the demand's very strong in terms of just being practical about the economy and how that might affect certain parts of the industry. Maybe we might see a, a slight detraction in clearance. I mean, it was sitting at 94% last year, 95%, yeah. which it is... Was, it was considered the greatest English sale ever, right? Yeah, well, that was, that was magic means. In, they all had record sales. Yeah. Um, so whether, whether there's a little less money as we get through the year, whether some of those smaller sales just run out of steam a little bit, um, are people going to take the same risk profile in terms of syndicators and trainers that need to unsell the horses, um, given... You know, there is uncertainty out there in terms of the economic marketplace. So th those are questions. But in terms of the vibe, in terms of the amount of people in the Hunter Valley looking at yearlings leading into all that stuff, hotel bookings, all the little key metrics that people like to use, that's very, very strong and very, um, you, you're very positive at the minute. Well, the top end of the market, the, the, the top range, the expensive yearlings, th th they won't be affected like the expensive houses. Like the fifty yep. million dollar houses at point five, yeah. there is so much money. Yeah, in, there doesn't yeah. The, the wealthy buyers. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of very rich people. Yeah. That, that economy going. They're just spending, it. you know. But the the, the probably the, the cheaper sort of horses, they might suffer a bit because yeah. mm. the people looking for mm -hmm. those aren't buying the syndicates and stuff. Yeah. Well, the, the, syndicate, the syndicate buyers. The, the syndicate buyers, because they you know, um, but you know the ones who are looking for the million dollar yearlings. Well, they're probably wealthy. $800 million, I mean, it's not that much to them. <laughs> we want to get the next Golden Slipper winner. Yeah. yeah, and there's, you know... That won't be affected. The, yeah. I guess also looking at what stallions are, are, are making in the marketplace mm. when they've won these group ones, um, it's driven people to want to invest earlier. Uh, and also broodmares. I mean, the mares are making a lot of money now. They didn't mm. used to... You'd buy, a, you'd buy a beautiful filly for, you know, five dollars $600,000. She'd win a stakes race and be worth... Five hundred thousand dollars. Now they're worth. Mm. Now they're worth one point two, one point yeah. five. It wouldn't be worth that much ones. more once upon a time. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a it's a real driver for people to get involved earlier on, and um, you know that's where we're seeing such healthy results. And I agree with, with Adam like that that mid to top end of the market. That that I'd be amazed if that comes back at all. In mm. fact, you, I wouldn't be shocked if it yeah. even increases slightly. Mm. Do you punt yourself? Uh, no, not not. Not particularly. I have a don't mind having a um, a bet here and there. I like ma mainly on our own horses if, I, if it's something we like, and um, I enjoy the testing my honing my skills in the two year old racing. Uh, yeah. 
obviously looking at all the yearlings and then watching them come through. And, and I love two-year-old racing. I think it's really exciting. Um, all the, you know, the, the people and the systems that go into producing them early. Um, so have a little punt on that now and again. And, and, uh, have you had any big wins on some of the big wins that you've had? Oh, look, you Having know. on Giga Kick? Uh, no, but my, my we, we had a, we had a great didn't lead need in. Did No, we, we, we had enough riding on that, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Funny, the funny part it. about someone that did have it make a lot of money on it was my wife, because we had a, a few good events leading in um, to the Everest where we met Clayton for the first time. And, and uh, Clayton, 27, was getting very excited the closer he got to the race. And he kept saying, and I've never had this horse like this. And, yeah, well. and I thought, you know, he's just been a bit excited. <laughs> he's, you know, it's good he's positive. But my wife was taking it for granted every time and kept kept slipping up to the TAB and having a, having a couple hundred bucks on it. So she, she, so she had a bit of a win. But no, it was, it was, it was great. Like you said, we had, a, we had enough riding on it and yeah, uh, there was enough. Didn't need um, to put any more on No, it. no. So I, I want to talk about the Everest because obviously that's been a, would have been a huge part of your career as well. And we might as well start with Giga Kick. I was going to start with getting involved in the Everest and Red Zell, but we might as well go with Giga Kick. So um, pretty extraordinary that you guys, one, that you picked Giga Kick, and then two, that it won the Everest. And why I say extraordinary that you picked it, because it had had four starts, if I'm correct, before you guys pulled it, yep. picked it thing. Two starts as a two-year-old and just, you know, pretty average races. Then it just won, I think it was the Dane Hill at Flemington. Spot on. So it was against other three-year-olds. It only just won. It wasn't... In my opinion, not hugely impressive. Obviously, I was wrong and you guys and whoever else helped you was right. And I remember when I heard, because you guys took a long time to pick your slot, and I heard, oh, the Harren syndicate, or the Harren slot holders have choose Giga Kick. I was like, Giga Kick? Really? I was like, okay, well, this would be interesting. I, you know, I thought that's a yeah. three-year-old and whatnot. Then Nature Strip, the best horse in the world, is in the race as well. The whole of Australia is on Nature Strip. Everyone was just like, it's just a complete moral. But I guess you guys knew better. Um. It's it's uh, look. It w you weren't on your own there. Interestingly, though, the next morning they told me it was Tab's worst result. Right. Giga Isn't kick. that interesting? So hmm. apparently, there was a lot of people. It's your wife. She's just it, how much <laughs> has she had? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, not that much. But um, it, it it was a bit. It was left of center. There's no question. It was a bit of a combination of things. We we waited. Um, we waited, and then three weeks out from the race, we saw Jackano, yep. um, Giga Kick, and Private Eye on the same day all mm. put their hand up for, for the race. And Jack, so did Giga Kick put his hand up when he won the Danehill? It was prior to the Danehill we started talking, uh -huh. and they sort of thought he was definitely a horse for the race, but probably for next year. Yep. Um, and we went into the Danehill saying, let's talk after the race. And do, is Mark Sheen and Dean Lester involved in these conversations? Um, look, at different points, just getting opinions on a group of horses. Um, you know, obviously Private Eye was in New South Wales and looked like a, you know, really good was option private, well. Had Private Eye been picked up then? No. 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 So Jack and I went to Coolmore and then really it was left between Giga Kick and, and, um, and Private Eye. Giga Kick's ratings in the race before the Danehill were very, very solid. In the Danehill, we actually had our own horse called Cannonball, who was nearly unlucky. So we were a bit baffled after the race, had a good chat about it. Did you feel Giga Kick went well in the Danehill, or were you a bit like, oh, it I was, don't know. I thought it was just a pass mark yes. in terms of 
getting confident about an Everest. Yeah. There's um, an argument there that you're probably lucky to win that day. The second horse ducked in and mm. probably should have beat it. Bone and Noxious, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, mm. You know, it, it didn't go straight. It was going to go past. It ducked in. He had to stop riding. And so it might mm. have been lucky to win the day, Neil, because mm. Cannonball might have been a bit unlucky too. It was tight. Yeah, it wasn't like a devastating win, was it? No. Anyway, sorry. No, and, and but, but you know, it's probably why you can't just judge everything. Um, we had a good chat with the owners after and and um, their representatives and you know he was probably just a wee bit he had a bit of a let up before the race and they probably just found him out a wee bit at the end of the race with th they thought he'd win by three or four lengths mm. that day and it would just be easy um i had a good chat with craig williams and craig was incredibly bullish about the horse mm. and you know craig's obviously goes into things in great detail as we know mm. but he made a lot of sense and if you look back at all the three-year-olds in that race even horses not not anywhere near his his level they've all performed very credibly yes so, strangely because of the time of year and everything it just you just wouldn't you have wouldn't thought. think so but the weight difference the weight helps. difference yeah, yeah. Mm. they go hard it suits the yeah. horse cut running on with not much weight yeah. that's right yeah. so when it all came together uh we 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 just went that direction and and um it was a very difficult decision because and but you know we're, we're good relationship with jonathan monsoons giga kick and and just all those conversations and relationships and craig williams was adamant he'd be a top four chance mm. um so we we put it down to him not being quite ready for the downhill and we needed that improvement we got a weight off and mm. uh, we had a very confident jockey and a horse that could handle any surface we're very confident about that which has obviously caught us out before in the past when it's been wet. So with all that being said, you know, you never dream of winning it. Mm. I, I was thinking he was a good horse that was going to run a top five and hopefully just be a, you know, wash your face type year. So And during the day, did you ever get a pang, hey, we might win this day? Or was it always just like, I'm going to enjoy the day? I just listened and watched so many smart people tip private eye and thought, what have I done? What about Nature Strip? <laughs> well, Nature Strip, I, I just the took him out to of, itself. I yeah, took him like, out of calculate, you know. Yeah. He he was either going to, you know, he you know he just looked like he was. Going I to get it him. wrong a lot, but I've got to say, Nature Strip, you knew it was going to get trapped three wide. Yeah, it had to get trapped because there's so much pace on the inside of it. Had the outside alley, it was going to get trapped three wide facing the breeze. If you think you can win a race like an Everest yeah. doing that, I don't well, care if you are the best sprinter in the world. It, it happened to us because it, it had to do it the If it had a barrier one or two, it makes it's pro it probably gets home because mm. it holds the rail. You know, where what it had to do was impossible. Mm. Really. Well, we, we had Nature Strip um, back the second or something a couple of years ago, which which drew the car park and ran fourth. Yes. Um, yeah. Same deal. It's hard to do, but yeah. it's all right if you're going to sit back. But it, it never as if there's going to be a lot of pace and you're a horse that goes forward and you've got barrier 12, or you're going to really struggle. Yeah, but that's what won it for Giga Giga, isn't it? Just was this well, sat back and waited. Rocketed in the last couple of hundred. I mean, it looked messy at the beginning and, and, and I didn't, yeah. and even just. He didn't look like he was tracking into it around the turn like a horse that was going to finish. So you didn't the way think that at the turn you didn't think you were going to win? Uh, no. no, no. I, I genuinely, it was probably one of the most satisfying days on the track because I had at no point that I think he was. Well, you'll actually never see, going to just roll past him at that. You'll that never point. see Private Eye hit the front in a twelve hundred meter race with about fifty meters to go and get run down. You'll never see that again because that's the sort of horse because it hits the line. Yeah, you know. Um, 
when it hit the lead, I just went, hello, I was on a pretty a lot of money. And, I, and all of a sudden, this thing, I said, oh, my God. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. to, to pick a horse like Private Eye up when it hits the lead, you know, because it finishes like a withered, it's got a big burst, yeah. Private Eye. Yeah. And, and yeah. came off a big really sprint. good win in yeah. Melbourne. So Yeah, absolutely. You know, look, it was, it was, it was very thrilling and, and Private Eye was, was, you know, he was trained to the moment by Joe Pride for that as well. It was, it was a fantastic He's a great trainer, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, when he picks a race, you can see he does it very, very well. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of wheeling and dealing that goes on with the Everest slots. Is it, I'm not expecting you to talk figures or anything, but is it assumed that to get Nature Strip to be in your slot, you're going to have to give them a, a much larger percentage than you would of someone like Giga Kig? Is, it, is that another attracting... How does it all work? Like, surely... The owners of Nature Strip get a bigger slice of the pie than the owners of Giga Kick. Is that right? Yeah, look, it's all individual, but I yeah. mean that 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 would be make the most sense. I mean, if you've got some of the corporates with um, with slots who are going to be much more competitive, we we look at it pretty commercially. Yes, um, we've got the slot there for our own horse to run in the race. We haven't had one suitable, um, and. Uh, but that is our plan. So when we're not having our own horse in the race, we need to make sure that we're not, we're not just losing money. Yeah, but so you'd, be, you'd be in front at it for sure, right? Yeah. You, you won it twice. So we, <laughs> we, we actually... I know that it all gets chopped up a lot, and, but... Yeah, no, we're in I was in thinking front. about it last night. You'd have to be in front at it. We've bought ourselves another another four years or something. Yeah. So, so What I, is it now, if you don't mind me asking, the slots now? They, they, they stayed the same price. Oh, they stayed the same price. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a uh, loyalty... Um, Peter Valandis. He said that at the start. He goes, I'm "Yeah," to and he's true to his word. Mm. They they're obviously going to increase the prize money further going forward. So I don't know if the structure changes. It's at still six hundred thousand, is it? Yes. And how how when did you resign for another? What's clever about it is they every year that you run, you sign up for the, another year, which is actually three years. So you're always three years ahead. Yeah. So it it gives the race a lot of. Um, you know, su- you know, structure and to make sure it continues on and it's funded. And um, but look, it's it's difficult. You know, y- you need to win them to to top top yourself up to keep to yeah. keep going because when mm. you're splitting prize money and you're mm. and you're and you're running out of the top handful, it it can be pretty expensive. Yes, it's a great um, concept. Though, isn't yeah, it? it's yeah. magnificent, and and yeah. it was one of those things that was set up just. Nearly yeah. perfect. Yeah, no, the first time. Absolutely. Yes. They just got it right. And you won it the first time. We did. We were very fortunate um, with Redzel. He was a Mark Sheen was a big fan of Redzel from early trial days. He mentioned a horse, and it was it was funny that we ended up with him in uh, in, the, in our slot. And he of course went on and won it again without us. But um, yes, no, he was a he was a great horse for the race because he was he was never going to run outside of the first three or four. That horse, he was so consistent yeah. on speed. And handled, you know, what we got a few big wet tracks. Wet and tracks, we, loved the. Wet. It was a big deal. It was a huge. I deal. don't remember who was that. Was he the favourite back then? I can't even remember. I should have researched it, but I didn't. I, mean, I backed him no, the second year when he won. It was about seven to one that day. Do you remember he, who was favourite that year? He was in year one. He was about ten dollars or yeah. eleven dollars. Mm. Um, I backed him one day. It was about seven dollars. Yeah. yeah, it was a pretty open field that year too. I feel. I feel like it was. Shoals was um, favourite on the second year. I think. Uh-huh. She was backed off the map. It was a really wet yes. year. Yeah, Charles, yeah. Um, King of Hazes, yeah. Vega Magic ran second in year one. 
Yes. Vega Magic sat was he, wide. Was he favourite? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. yeah. So Vega was, Magic became favourite. Someone but it was five dollars. Like it was a wide yeah, open. I think Vega Magic was favourite. Someone yeah. made the point that it's been lucky that there hasn't been a black caviar that would just completely dominate things because they just and it, so it's been quite an open field each year, which mm. has been good. You know, you don't yeah. you don't want one There's horse. Even Nature Strip was he was short, years. obviously, but it came. Oh, totally. I, I think it's been a been the. One of the big reasons for its success, I think, yeah, in America, it didn't didn't happen for them. Those yes. just dominant horses. We've, it's been fortunate, and and look, a lot of but people get a lot horses. out of it. It's yeah. spread spread wide. I mean, you think about, um, I mean, with Red Zell, there was so many owners. Then there was a, I mean, our slots, partnership of people, and you've got jockeys and trainers. So it's, it really does spread itself out, and um, for it to be one different years and not be dominated makes it much more interesting for everyone. Mm, mm. But horses like your Black Caviar's come along every 50 years or so. Well, Vane might have been the last one comparable to, I don't know, but that was in the late 60s. Like, you don't get them. It's like yeah. wins. They come along every 30 yeah. or 40 yeah. years. You don't get dominant horses like that. Really. You, know when, you know when one arrives, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, they don't stand up, do they? In that longevity horses, in, in, in a lot of times, you know. Like, yeah. They're animals. <laughs> and <laughs> when... So the Everest next year, are you starting to look at who will fill your slot now, or is it you don't even bother? You just no, just it's just just sit back. I think I think. When you know, will you start looking? When will you start taking? Going okay, let's start. Well, like this. the dream is to have our own horse. So sure, you sure. know, if we if we can score a big two year old this year, yes, um, we will. We oh, wow, will, yeah, right, because we'll, you can run them as three odds, of course. Yeah, and that's yeah. our that's that's the whole. Win the Golden Slipper, then the Everest. Well, that would be the dream. I mean, that's that's the path. Near impossible, though. No, if it doesn't necessarily have to win a slipper, but no. you'd want to be you'd want to be right up there at two. Yeah. Yes. And then, basically, line everything up for the Everest because you've still got the Coolmore as a backup afterwards, yeah. which we saw yeah. Home Affairs do very successfully. Mm. So, and because that's like if you you won the Golden Slipper, Everest, and Coolmore, and it's well bred, like talking forty, fifty million dollar. Valuation, yeah, be a record. You, you'd, yeah, it would yeah. be right. Yeah. As much as you'd ever hear a horse sell for in Australia, I'd nearly say that it's nearly impossible to do that. Yeah, if anyone can do it, you can do it. <laughs> that's, that's kind <laughs> of you. I, I'd be, I hope so. No, it's like that. Piero. Well, probably could have nearly done it. Not many could do it. Because he won a gold slipper. It probably Piero would have been hard to beat in Everest. I, I totally because it was still good at three. He was a you know incredible he was still animal. a good horse at three, but not many of them. When gold slippers then go on, with no, no, no. Well, they're worth too much money, but they're worth forty million anyway. Gold slipper now, aren't they? Are they? You still get that kind of money, or I guess it depends on the breed. It, it varies. It varies exactly on yeah. the, on the pedigree. Oh, and schnitzel, it's sweet. Yeah, and you know, um, it's it's it really just varies. There's a lot of money out there for them, and um, a lot of bonus structures. So there'd be you know there'd be a price plus plus kickers if he was to go and win those those nuts races. But mm. like Adam said, very difficult to. Golden Slippers, that's the most important race for breeding, isn't it? It's, just, it's on its own. It's the you win the grand. Golden Slipper, your yeah. breeding career is more or less set. Yeah. You're, you're really, it really has been the, the, the blueprint for, for, the, for the stallions in Australia. And, yeah. and it's what everyone has been sales wanting to, wanting to find. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to Vane, in, I think it won in 69. It was a great sire. Luskin Star was a great sire. It, it all comes through the Golden yeah, Slipper. Yeah. You look at the history of the Golden yeah. Slipper winners, they're, all, they're always the great sires. Mm. Reduce Choice didn't run and it was scratched the day before, probably would have run it. Um, and it's also just horses that competed in it. Yep. Mm. 
have gone on to be good stadiums. It's, 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 it's amazing. It's an amazing. Yeah. Didn't, didn't run the goals. The speed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Speed, precocity, tough. Because, yeah. you know, just getting back to the breeding side of horses, back in England, I think it was Vincent O'Brien, the great Irish trainer who introduced Northern Dancer crossbreed to the European horse. Northern Dancer was the American that, that had the speed and he crossed the speed with the stone. Mm. So speed's the most important. Golden Slipper, you know, just validates that, that speed's such an important thing in a horse. Oh, and, and even... <laughs> speed. Even and, and broodmares, you know, broodmares yeah. that have speed, yeah, speed are the best broodmares. I mean, That's the speed, yeah. It's, it's, there's just no, yeah. no question. I think even people buying yeah. Melbourne Cup horses are, you know... Well, you need, horses. If you don't have tactical speed, well, you need to have a turn, turn of foot. foot. You know, it's if you don't have a turn of foot, you're in trouble. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, we've got questions. Um, there's some good ones here. Uh, we'll start out. You sort of already talked a little bit about the Colt Syndicate, but um, so Ben Cabanaro said, "How does the Colt Syndicate work?" And he says, "Do you have an agreement that your syndicate receives a percentage when each foal is born out of capitalist?" So I guess he just wants a bit of a description about how the cult partnership works yeah so you know just just as i sort of touched on earlier we we've got a group of people that will will buy 10 to 15 cults a year and and really just trying to unearth um stallion potential and the ones that aren't will be trading through on the way and and trying to you know make sure we we retain as much capital as possible and, and just look for that that big horse that, that that can go to stud um the process when they win at that high level or hopefully win at that high level when you're selling down to stud farms. Um, we will generally um, sell down and retain some equity. And obviously the equity is transferred into, into shareholdings with, with the stud farm. They, they usually work as two to two and a half percent shares. And that's just called a stallion share. And um, you will be, as a breeder, you'll get maybe standard talking Two, norm, two, two breeding rights to that horse per year, plus a percentage of the overall pool. So we won't get a percentage of every capitalist full. That would be that would be nice. Yeah. But uh, on the ones that they, you know, the breeding rights they own, or the ones they breed, obviously, uh, obviously they do. So yes. So it's very much, um, uh, you know, whether we retain equity or not. Yeah. So a big part of the share is sold, and you have no more. Um, you get no more money out of that, but you do retain small equity, exactly, which gives you, yeah, which keeps you with a bit of skin in the game. Absolutely, yeah. And can people buy in and out of the cult syndicate? Like, have you had some people leave it and other people come into it? Yeah, we've we, look, we've we've had we've had nobody leave, which has been great, and and that's you know we've got a very good group of people, and we've um, had a few new people join it uh, over the over the period, mm -hmm. um, and we look, we try and we're just very mindful that everyone get, get you know enjoy each other's company and get on yes. well and have a have a common um you know goal in, in what we're doing and and a good buy-in and we've 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 created amazing you know as you guys have, are doing and have done uh, a good community amongst mm. each other and, and some f amazing friends and um a lot of people it, it turns into their their social side of their lives and and uh, it's it's fantastic it's one of the most rewarding things to see some of those relationships that have grown over the last Seven or eight years. And you guys will be going hard at the Magic Millions and the English sale for the Colts partnership. You guys are loaded up and looking yeah. for some... It all starts again. Value, hopefully. So, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, so you'll be active at these next two sales for the Colts partnership? Yes. Yeah, so Magic Millions is always a big sale for us to, to kick things off. And, um, you know, Magic Millions leads into the English Classic sale, which is, again, it's a good sale. And, and we've got Melbourne Premier, where we don't do as much. And then Easter, obviously, which is 
um, a lot of quality and, and, and top horses we've had success with in the past. So. I live right next door to the Old Inglis at Newmarket. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's when I live with my family, but we spend every day in the old auction ring. Yeah. Have you been to it? You know, it's for, they've done a fantastic job. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. literally there every single it's day. Excellent. It's excellent. Like yeah. I, sit, I sit in the old auctioneer's box watching my kids run around. Yeah. It's good. No, yeah. I, thought, I thought they did an amazing job because it's such a historical piece of land and yeah. I wasn't sure how it would how it would work, but they've, they've done a great oh, job. I'm yeah. going to take a photo of me, my kids playing in it and I'll put it up on this video. A lot of people wouldn't have seen what it's turned into, yeah. but it'll be interesting for a lot of people. So... Um, so all right. Evidently, it was heritage listed. That was it. Yeah. Ring, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And also the, the big barn at the back. And, yeah. and, and so it's, so there's a lot of history in that. Yeah. No, they've done a fantastic Not job with it. Not just for horse racing, but it's a history of it's, Sydney. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. Do you go there with your family ever? Yeah. Well, actually, um, I hadn't been, and a friend of mine lives down there that works at Inglis is Andrew Munson, and, and uh, he showed me around it, and yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was yeah. really impressed. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, moving on. So I'm very deep in the punting world um, and there's always talk about how much punters pay by taxes and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of punters say, well, why doesn't the breeding game throw in more, right? So there's a few questions coming here now about that whole issue, which I'm, it'd be good to discuss and keep that sort of conversation going. Um, so the first one's from John Walter, who's a, who's a well-known punter. So his first question is, should bloodstock agents be licensed people by racing bodies? Constantly hearing of rogue agents playing both sides of the fence, would then becoming licensed be a decent start in protecting potential buyers and owners? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I mean, I think anything which which keeps, um, you know, gives people um, full transparency and 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 confidence within our industry and in our sport from an integrity point of view is, is you know, very well should be very welcomed. Um, you know, it seems to be an industry which sorts the wheat from the chaff out pretty quick and you know people that are um you know doing things properly you can see their businesses thrive and it's got a, a habit of getting rid of the others so uh with saying that it's it's just become as we touched on earlier it's such a different place in the last 10 years you know we're dealing with very big numbers a lot of new investment a lot of sophisticated investment and to keep growing that and to keep making that bigger and better um, we, we most likely will see um, things like this being implemented, and, and I certainly would welcome it. Um, even from a, you know, selling tried horses and things like that into Hong Kong, where there can be a lot of different processes and people, um, you know, you, there could be lots of ways to sort of streamline that with with a sort of you know, licensed people or or accredited people or whatever way you you know you you do it. So no, I'm I'm always open to. Um, any way we can we can give consumer confidence yep, and, and protect people consumers, to, yep. yeah, and get involved is, is important. Great, great answer. Um, so this is a big one. So it's from Little Birdie. Nick Heathcote runs Little Birdie, good mate of mine. Um, big question: If breeders are gambling in the industry too, I sort of made the point when I was talking about this podcast that breeding the breeding game is punting, which which it is. You know, it's, it's a bet. Like there's, you know, you're investing money, and there's every chance you're not going to get anything back. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll repeat the question: If breeders are gambling in the industry too. Why are they doing it without a product fee? Is it time for a stallion tax or breeder's tax? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, you, you'd probably be better directing that to, to some of the big breeders. Yeah, um, John Massaro or something. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're you know, my, my small input on, on that question would be that, you know, when you pull back the curtains of breeding, you know, you do see a lot of, 
big results, but there's a lot of oh. money that goes into it's a, bit, it's a huge gamble. It's massive. What John Massara did with the Dude's Choice was a huge gamble. Yeah, I mean, for it at the time. And know? look, there's a lot of stuff. Fortune favours the brave, as we say. Yeah, yeah. and and could have turned disastrous. <laughs> you know the cost, the cost yeah. of um, of breeding and and versus the risk and, and and how much goes into it. You know, you'd be very surprised. It's a very difficult business to make money from um albeit you see these huge results in the sales ring and and some people do and and i can't really comment i don't really understand exactly how the how the tax would work but i do know we run different people's and um, breeding portfolios and and it's hard it's hard business and, and the studs that are investing in the stallions we're talking about paying 20 30 40 million dollars for these things with no guarantees mm. Um, can leave big holes in the um, in the balance sheet. So um, I, I just would be mindful of the expense of it and um, that it doesn't just look as... It's not as good as it looks, yeah. is what I'd say. Nothing is. Yeah, because no. the, the media only report on the, the huge deals and the big million-dollar sales. So you're sort of... Just what's saying is a bit of a false sense of what it's really like because of all the three and $400,000 horses that people purchase or all the horses that get passed in at sales by breeders and stuff. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of lost money Huge. in that. Interesting statistic is that the biggest resource owners in Australia are breeders. Are the yeah. Breeders. So, yeah. you know, they're obviously having to go forward with the stock. They're, you know, so there's a lot of expense to that in terms of keeping them in training, in terms of breeding them, in terms of getting, you of know, course. so I'd be mindful of that. Well, do the maths on it. Okay, so what's, who's the dearest stallion at the moment? It's 220, I'm invincible. I'm invincible. Yeah. 220. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I've got a filly or mare. I send it to I'm Invincible. Well, that's 220 grand. It's cost me. That's yeah. what it owes me now. Now, a lot of the time, they get born with one leg facing that way. Mm. <laughs> that 220 just gone down. Now, now, I've had to look after the mare yep. while it's pregnant. You've had to buy the mare. Had to, I've had to, well, and I, I, I buy the mare. Yeah, like, yeah. The thing's owing you 400 grand. What are For you sure. going to get for, by the time it gets yeah. to the sales? Yeah. If it does get to the sales, it owes me 400. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then you've got to pay sales commissions <laughs> exactly. or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah you got your, then you got sales commissions, not, insurance. It's not as glamorous as, as it all sounds. It's Let tough. Let me tell you, it's a tough gig. I think the overwhelming what, what punters are trying to say is it's bloody hard to win on the punt. Yeah. Because of all the fees and taxes. And I guess what you're saying is it's bloody hard to win in breeding as well. Yeah. Because of all the expenses associated Exa with that's it. That's exactly right. And yeah. I, I can't um, comment on the punting part. Um, I don't I don't know exactly how that works, but I have read different things about it and different varied, varied views on it. And it seems to, you know, you, you, you just want to make sure we're not taking people out of the business. Um, it's important we don't lose the corner shops and the, and the smaller. And, and putting tax on sort of breeders would, would yeah. do that. I, would I think it's incredible how many owners there are. Like Adam and I will be here on a Saturday <laughs> and we talk about, oh, there's 16 meetings today. We're going to bet on every single race. And Adam and I are looking at that. Who's who, paying for them? Mm -hmm. Who feeds them? It's a country of 25 million people. Like the ones at Dubbo. The ones at Dubbo. But it's yeah. like, yeah. You know, it's running, hang on, they run last in a maiden at Dubbo and they're having their 30th start. Like someone's been paying for this horse for three years, it's never won a race. Today's <laughs> Friday before Christmas. There'll be so many races yeah. on today. Because everyone's so many oh, It so is funny. fascinating. Well, yeah. I, I have the same feeling at the horse sales. I said, Who, who's going to buy yeah. all these horses? And then it's, you get a 95% clearance rate. You <laughs> yeah. Know? yeah. Amazing. No, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's, there's a lot behind all of it. There's a lot behind horse racing in general. And the average person that goes into the TAB every Saturday doesn't 
doesn't understand what's behind the scenes. Mm. The training of the horses, just getting them ready, you know. Mm. The breaking in, as you pointed out earlier. Yeah. You know, what it took to get that horse to the sales in the first place. Then you've got to break, you know, then they t break it in yeah. properly. And then they educate it and... Then you've got to win races with it. You don't teach it how to race properly. Oh, you've yeah. got to love yeah. racing to be involved. If you don't yeah. love racing, you're not going to last long. It's no, like, you, yeah, you just yeah. won't. You yeah. just don't get a horse and put it in a race. There's three years of hard work going into yeah. that bloody thing before it gets there. But you're right. Years. I mean, the, if you're not passionate about it, you know, you, you're not going to keep going at it. Mm. You've mm. just got to be able to weather the, weather the peaks and troughs of the business. Mm. But the, the good days are very, very good. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nothing like winning. Yeah. Three more questions. This one's from Nags Head. Um, what can the industry do to encourage the breeding of better quality staying horses in Australia, reducing the need to import European tried horses? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a widely discussed topic. I think, um, you know, it's difficult. Uh, people, you know, we've seen huge money being put towards staying races uh, in Australia. It's probably been the biggest rise of prize money has been middle distance and above. So, you know, taking out the Everest, it's a bit of a it's, yeah. a, it's its own beast. It's sort of funded with, with slotholders and things. But, you know, obviously then the breeding industry hasn't focused on that. And, and, and it's New Zealand's probably probably lacking real sire power, which it used to have over the years via Zabil or High Chaparral, et cetera, um, for, for those races. So that's sort of, uh, you know, not been the, the, the source that it used to be. And... Um, and that's not to say it won't be down the track. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure a stallion, and I'm sure that will pop up. But they've probably been trading a lot of their colts and geldings through Hong Kong, and yeah. there hasn't been a huge amount of reinvestment across the board. Some do, uh, but across the board, so people have been stepping outside, as we know, and buying these these horses that have been seasoned for the staying races. And um, I guess that's a very good question. How do we make sure that money stays within within Australia? Or, Australasia and develops the horses for that so you know I, I, it's very difficult because they've done everything they've can in terms of prize money to attract people mm. but without the stallions and the sire power it's very difficult to get excited about how you breed that horse you know putting in that you've got to be born and raised in Australia as part of the conditions of some of these races may be something you see down the track, but mm. is that going to improve the quality of that race? Mm. It's going to be pretty ugly. It'll be, a you know, yeah. it'll take a while for it to get there. And when you breed that middle distance yearling and you put it into the ring, it's, it's a, yeah. you, you then find out that everyone that's talking about wanting to breed stairs, where are they? Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and the, the beautiful, strong, capitalist cult that looks like it's going to win the magic means there's 20 people lining up to bid on it yeah rather than two on the stair that they want to nick it and mm. you know get it for unders no, so it's it'll, difficult it'll never come back in this country breeding stairs for the simple fact that it's in the mentality of racing people yeah. who race that they want the quick return the two-year-old mm. i not, agree with that I you know it's, it's just not going to come no. back. and i think it's okay like i think you know, it's become a sprinting nation this I think people are something to be proud of on that too. I mean, you go to Royal Ascot, we're, we're winning those races and those sprint mm. races. Oh, I mean, the Everest. Were, the best. Were, you at, were you at Ascot this year? I was, yeah. How good? Yeah, amazing. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was great to be back. And, yeah. and, uh, Do you go every year, James, except for COVID, of course? For the season? They call it the season. The season. <laughs> season. Do you go I, for the season? I don't. <laughs> I d we, we, um, we bought a couple of breeze up for it. We had a bit of an I hatched a plan through COVID to try and have runners over there, and we ended up with. Uh, 
a horse running for us. It ran okay. Um, but I'd only go if I've got like some an interest in a yeah. runner. Um, yeah. It is a I would urge anyone that that. that I went for black caviar. Oh, you well, you, yeah. you did it right. We, we, yeah. we were there for black caviar. Well, I was there. Wasn't we're pretty we're amazing. It's a good it? so right. Good little story I'll tell. King's. This is ten years ago now. King said to me, "Let's go to Ascot for um, black caviar's race." I was like, "Oh, it's going to be expensive." He goes, "Whatever the whatever it costs us, we'll have on black caviar <laughs> on the day." Yeah. So I go, "Sweet, let's do it." So we, you know, it's expensive. We bought business class tickets, and you know, I, I think I was in the hole for. 20 grand or something. Anyway, yeah. and we get to there. Adam was there as well. And on the day, and Black Caviar kept firming and firming and firming. And I'm like, oh, it's getting shorter and shorter. And I think it ended up like a dollar twenty. So I said to Kings, I go, how much you spent on the trip? He goes, he goes forty thousand. So I said, are you gonna are you gonna be true to your word? Are you gonna have two hundred thousand on Black Caviar? He goes, yep, absolutely. <laughs> I I tapped out. I said, I can't. What would I? I would have to have a hundred thousand. It's just way beyond my thing. So I ended up, I tapped out and said, I'll have five thousand on it. Um, anyway, Kings had the two hundred thousand on it, and it was, um, and he got his forty thousand back because it just won. It was, but it was he nervous. Dropped the hands I was, I was he, so, dropped, he dropped his uh, hands. He was fine. He just was like, yeah, whatever. And then even during the race, but I, I think he was a little bit nervous. Yeah, fifty meters to go. Yeah. So that shows you how good she was when he lifted his hands again. She went bing. Yeah, yeah. But like in a split second, she went right. I'm back on. You Were know, you there she the day did, she won. No, I wasn't. Yeah, there. she I dropped actually, her hands and she put her head down. I watched as the horses do. And as soon as he. Realised what he's done. He lifted his hands and she went right. I'm on again. Like she just switched back on like that. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you actually what walk that walk that course, it's 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 amazingly different to how. I mean, like every course, I, I find and until you walk them, you you actually don't really get a, a true appreciation oh, you, of yeah, the undulation. You're going up hills. That that <laughs> hill, like she yeah. never would have experienced. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's sort 100%. of you get a wee bit of a free. Like a roll yeah. down, mm. and then it, and then it gets quite. Yes. It, it's way stiffer than it it's looks. It's a real yeah. race, and that's what she track, sort of yeah. hit with the. Mm. Yeah, yeah. you got to be a real race horse to win there. Yeah. Have you ever met? Did you ever meet the Queen? No, no, I didn't. Um, but uh, what, you never met Black Caviar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, well, like Black Caviar only from a distance. But um, <laughs> you know, no, she she what she's done for for racing um, in the UK was massive, yeah. and uh, she was you know anyone that knew her. Had dealings with her. She was so passionate, yeah. and the stories are quite amazing. Um, she did a trip to Ireland, um, which was a big deal, uh, probably ten or twelve years ago. And I think the whole reason for the trip was to go and see Galileo. You yeah, know, she just really yeah. Yeah, right. was yeah. so passionate and met yeah. John Magner, and they've known each other a long time. Yeah, and uh, you know, it was uh, it, it was extraordinary how how much investment, foreign investment. It brought into the UK because every emerging Arab country around the United Arab Emirates and etc. and it's still happening. They want that connection mm. with the royal family, and they, they see London as that as that big thing. So y you'd never be able to quantify, mm -hmm. you know, how much interest was brought in via her to, to UK horse racing via yeah, the Queen. It's yeah. Quite extraordinary. Yeah. Well, that famous saying "That's racing" <coughs> was, was made famous by her mother. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Well, the story goes, got a horse in the Grand National, some big race. It came to the last jump and it fell. It was in front and it fell. And someone said, oh, bad luck, mum, or whatever. And she said, that's racing. Was a, you know, <laughs> that's the crown, racing. The, the Crown on Netflix, you know The Crown on Netflix? Yes. Have you watched the latest series? I haven't. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. There's quite often the Queen says to Prince William when he's 10 or 12, 
put the races on the TV. She's finally <laughs> Prince William. <laughs> Prince William gets her a little TV. She says, "Like grandma, you can watch the races on it." And he's like at, a, at your whatever you call it, your betting agency. She's like, "Really? This is a scene in the Crown." Yeah, brilliant. And he's like, puts it on again. Then later in the episode, she, she calls him, "William, can you put the races back on for me?" Again? It's, it's funny. Be quiet. I'm watching the race. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Go in the other room. Righto, this is from Gorbo. This is a big question. Uh, love to hear what James thinks on the welfare issue and if he thinks there is over, if there is an overbreeding issue. How can breeders, regulators work together moving forward to reduce, in my opinion, a pretty big risk to the great game? Big question. Yeah, I mean, I think um, some really good points in that question. I think um, welfare is, is probably the most biggest challenges to the industry. And I think it's being addressed properly now and a lot of money is going into it. And I think a lot of people are just being made a lot more aware, um, which is important. And also, you know, there's a new social platform um, you might have seen called Kick Up and it's yep. uh, Vicky Leonard's been putting out the facts about racing. And what was happening was there was a lot of... Um, you know, things being said that weren't true. Misinformation. Yeah. Complete misinformation. And uh, there was no real voice for the industry. And as participants, we should all know the facts, good or bad, so that we can deal with them and make it make it better and, and improve it and bring it up to today's standards of what it should be. And I think we're on track doing that. I think everyone's much more aware. I think the education is, is, is getting better. And, um, you know, we're seeing... We're seeing really good rehoming uh, happening um, with horses. I mean, they're very young when they're finished racing. I mean, they've got a long mm, time totally. to go mm -hmm. in terms of. I mean, we've got two ponies at home. They're, I think I think one of them's thirty. You know, yeah. and I'm not saying they're going to live to all live to thirty, but there's 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 great years left in them for riding horses. And then you know you're not they're not having to go out and breed more and more riding. You know, you're 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 not just producing producing producing. You're you're spreading it out and, and putting these great animals to good use of, and, and people can enjoy them and they can have a great life. Mm. So no, I think we're on the right, you know, yeah. I, think, I think we're getting more and more um, aggressive with it and I think it's a massively important thing. Yeah, well. yeah, we can't, yeah, we just need to keep pushing forward what we're doing and they've right. made big, big progress in the last few years. Is there how many horses are bred a year in Australia? Well, it's been a declining, it's actually been a declining stud book. Yeah, because it's um, not that attractive to be a breeder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... It's, 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 it's a very expensive, we just discussed Yeah, it. it's an expensive fast dog. <laughs> yeah, and America's had a very declining stud book as well. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure of the exact figure today, but, but, it, but it has been declining. And we're sort of, there's so much racing, um, as you talked about earlier. Mm. So, Spinning. in terms of overbreeding I, I i'd say in terms of the actual numbers of races and what we're trying to achieve on that front there probably isn't overbreeding there's probably a lot of overmating where people are maybe breeding from horses and maybe this is one of the points that that they probably aren't good enough to breed from and and you see that a lot when the markets are good and they're strong everyone just wants a piece of the action and and that's probably um not good for the breed long term and um it's very difficult to control though because everyone's got a story with their horse. You know, mm. uh, you, the stud masters. It's hard for them to knock back the, the not someone paying money to, to breed to their stallion. They they might want to race it themselves and it might never see a, a sales ring. So it's a very fine balance. Mm. Mm. Okay. Uh, last question from James. 
What was the best cult you've made and what was the worst, both in terms of result, sale to stud versus expectation on early hype and purchase price? Yeah, um, look, the, in, terms of, in terms of a good story, I mean, I guess Capitalist has been, um, you know, he ended up on our final list. And was he, was, did the cult syndicate buy him? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he, he was, was super cheap. Yeah, he was 165,000. What, what were you willing to go to on him? That we were really just tapping out, which, really? is, wow. which sounds very interesting, yeah. given given we might have spent a well, we did spend a lot more in other cults. But he was by written tycoon, who had I think he was on to his third stud by then. Um, he had just not been quite firing, and we just really liked this horse as a, as a as an individual. And the market back then was it was quite different. So he was probably the equivalent of paying, you know. Three four hundred thousand for a bit of a, a what what the stallion looked like a bit of a punt and written tycoon. Now what written tycoon went on and did mm. after that is is a is a different story, but he was he was a great result in terms of um, his his cost as a yearling and what he was syndicated for and what he's gone on to do and produce now. So um, he's been terribly exciting. And, and so how many um, of the the Colts partnership? How many have you sold? I mean, this King, King's Legacy was part of the Colts partnership. Yes, yeah, King's yeah. Legacy. Um, Capitalist, obviously. Capitalist. Any per other ones that have... Pariahs that started Arrowfield. Yeah. Um, so he's just got his three-year-olds out running now. Um, so you've had three go to serious stud deals? Yeah, the, with, within our groove, yeah. Yeah, yep. it's pretty good. Yep, and, um, you know, it's it's just now important what they... We know Capitalist as well on his way. He's, he's is it Whidden, is he? Ca Capitalist at Newgate. Newgate, Newgate yeah, stud. yeah, sure. Yeah. And, um, yep, he's doing a good job. And, and of course, yeah... Pariah, we've you know it's we've got an important sort of six to eight months for him. He, he needs to kick a few goals. Um, he's had nice progeny on the ground. He's been beautifully managed by our field, but they need to they need to yeah, fire out, yeah. and um, that'll happen or it won't. It's it's yeah. there's no guarantees. And King's Legacy's just got his first crop of foals. He was the most popular first season stallion last year, so he's got a really good spread of of foals in the ground, which gives him every chance. Yeah, um, and I. I Sort of said, what was the worst one? Well, I guess is you're not going to be a bloodstock agent not buy some horses that don't work out. So. No, I mean, I, I think you know what's what's really frustrating is when you have um, injuries or issues, and, and, that, and that can be, you know, that happens a lot. Mm. Um, you're dealing with athletes. You just have to be into sports and realize how many of these guys get injuries and trying mm. to keep a team together. So, you know, we've had we've had numerous numerous horses of, of high profile that. You know, you like you're talking about hype and excitement, and you can, you know, you can get really, really uh, excited about one, and it can do everything well, and then and then have a have a wind issue or have a have an accident at the stable or something, and those are those are the heartbreaking bits for us and for the owners. It's you know you don't really get any run for your money at all, so it can be very frustrating. What's the most you've ever gone over your absolute highest bid by? Well, I mean, on the worst result story, that that's probably. One of the horses we pushed so hard on, um, we went we went to two point eight million on a Schnitzel Colt, which yeah. was, you know, in terms of having every single thing in the profile yeah, just yeah. tick. Um, and did you win? Did you get it? We bought the horse, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> and, uh, and so before, <laughs> what was the you know before the went through the ring? What was the? Did you say I oh, will? Did you say we'll go to two point eight or we'll go to three? Oh, or I thought he, I thought he'd make about. What was it out of, please, James? He, he, so he, he was a three-quarter brother to 
Canary. Right. Yeah. And he was out of a general dealer. He's a he's a beautifully bred. He was from Corumbin, who've who've obviously produced Minari, they produced Sebring. Mm. Um he was a magnificent animal. And um it was a year uh well, when we bought him, we brought him back and he broke in well and he was shooting the lights out at home. Like mm. absolutely shooting the lights mm. out. And went to the races and uh took off on the way to the start and then got himself very head up. And, and jumped and just faded badly. And I remember that cold sweat just watching that race. And, uh, you know, it, it, it emerged a few, you know, six weeks later that the horse had a, a, a very a, a bad breathing issue. Yeah. And uh, he was only getting about 20% air. Mm. So, you know, we did the operation and everything, but nothing, nothing really, no nothing really changed it. There's one horse, I can't remember what it was, a good horse had one operation. Good horses, yeah, but they're very rarely mm. any good. Oh, it's heartbreaking that that, that, yeah. that wind operation, especially if they've got a on their general demeanour. If they're very relaxed mm. and they drop the bit and cruise out the back and hit the line, yeah. they can get away with get away with a lot more when they're high energy and and they they can pull a bit and, and and just sort of get on the chewy. They seem to, they're just not relaxing their their muscles and it just it's just like there's just no oxygen getting mm. in. So, so he was probably he was probably a, our worst most disappointing result. Um, but, you know, it's why we buy 10 or 12 Colts mm. on, on that same year. You know, it was probably one of our most profitable years in terms of, uh, you know, it was King's Legacy's year. So yeah. we spread the, the money over a few of them and, and you know, and uh, you're waiting for one to pop and they're not all going to pop. So yeah. Where uh, did that horse go after that? After he went, he's racing in Queensland. Um, yeah. He's won oh, I, I think hospital. Hoss yeah, Heinrich. I Hoss think Heinrich, Heinrich bought the horse. Mount Fuji, yeah. yeah. Mount Fuji, yeah. <laughs> Mount Fuji, and it won. The, na the name nearly makes me. And I think of. it won. <laughs> I think it won at Ipswich this year. Yeah, it, it, it won a race at Ipswich. Yeah. Wasn't there a horse called Mount Olympus that sold for Gay bought it for three million about right. twenty years ago? I think he was a brother to Hulu and Emperor. Yes, yeah. exactly right. And, yeah. they, and, and she, yeah, she bought mm. it for three million. But when <laughs> when you're in the sales ring and you're Bargain. bidding, do you have a limit, or do you just get a feel for what's happening in the ring at the time and go, okay, well I'll Oh, definitely have a, an idea of a limit. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and I think situations like that teach you and you Who learn. Who's the underbidder on the $2.8 million one? Um, not, not. His name, his name was Lucky. Yeah, I, it, his name was Lucky. I think I've sc scratched out some <laughs> okay, of that. Okay, cool. Let's stop talking about it. I get it. I get um, it. Yeah. The, uh, there was, there, uh, could have been the Americans. Um, the, yeah, no, look, it's, 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 it's one of those things with these cults, you know, like when they're, when when the, when you're in the ring, you, you can't be completely rigid, you know, because the market is strong. Um, but we we learned a lot. You learn a lot by those ones. I mean, when you're getting injuries and things outside of your control, you ha you do have to have limits. And and, and I guess your business would be no different. There's, yeah. You just got to have to find some margins. And um, so, would you be no rush to pay that much for a horse again? No rush. And yeah. um, just given what can what can go wrong. Yes. Um, but it really depends on what's out there. I mean, we you know that same year we bought. You know, King's Legacy for 1.4 million and, mm. and turn them into 15 million yeah. in a pretty short space of time. And you know, you look back like Fox Wedge was a 900 thousand dollar horse into 10 and a half million, and Wanjina was a million dollar horse into nine and a half million. So, so you know, people can be quite condemning of these higher priced horses, but that you know, those are big multiples when you get it right. Mm. 12 dollar uh, chance, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> 900 on a 12 dollar yeah. winner. Yeah. The other horses before we go that, that cost 2.8 million was the younger brother of Octagonal. And a horse called Moo Wad. Did it cost that much? 
the third brother. So Octa he had Octag and all that. It was called Columbia. Columbia. That's the got two point eight they paid yeah. for it many yeah. years ago. And it did nothing. That would have been in the nineties, I think. Yeah. I remember late nineties. So Moorwad, do you remember Moorwad? Yeah. Moorwad yeah. was an outstanding. It was yeah. probably better than Octagonal, but finished racing yeah. earlier. It was yeah. like really good. Yeah. Uh, never, never hit the heights. Harry Connors trained. Then the third, yeah, the third horse was this Columbia, which yeah. I think was bought by the Freedmans, off memory. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and two point eight. It never even got to the. Actually, track. you know what? No, it, didn't it? Didn't it run really well in a derby or something? I feel like. No, that did. was no, Don Eduardo. Don yeah, Eduardo. Don yeah. Eduardo. They paid horse. somebody yeah. about two point yeah. something for it. Too. Don yeah. Eduardo. Yeah. Won a derby, won the AJC derby, didn't it? Yeah, I think it did, yeah. Yep. But won it, yeah. But winning but won, a, a, won a group one. Winning an AJC derby is not AJC. great for a stallion prospect, is it? No, it's uh, not that, now. There's no market for it now. I mean, so if you, if you, um, someone wins the AJC derby and they've got a nice colt, what would you estimate they would get from a stud for it? Would they get like three or four million at, as a... Depends on the on what it... Like you said, like breeding and what it's done on the way through. I mean, if it's just a genuine, you know, Stayer. so you think type freak, mm. they'll they'll get paid they'll get paid pretty well. Mm. If it's a, just an out and out Derby horse with with you know real gelding money, you'll probably get more money selling it to Hong Kong. Yeah, there was a horse in the sixties that won the Slipper and the Derby. <laughs> Bounding away won the Slipper and the Oaks. Incredible things. Like yeah, that. absolutely. Storm Queen won the slipper in the Oaks horse Bart Cummings had. So that used to happen once upon a time. But I'm trying to think of the horse's name that won the slipper and the derby. Well, Whatever it was. But that was when the derby was run in the spring. It's run in the autumn now. See, the AJC derby when I was younger, it changed in 79, was run in the spring. So it was run before the Victorian derby. So they'd right. have the derby here, then they'd go to Victoria. Mm-hmm. The Victorian derby. Well now, and then in 79, they changed it to the autumn. Yeah. The later stage. And anyway. just finishing off, um, so do you, I mean, it's probably a dumb question, but do you still feel like you've got a lot to achieve in the game, a lot to, to do, and are you just as motivated as ever, or do you sort of look at and think, oh, I can do this for another five years or so, and then I want to take life easier? No, no, not at all. No, like, I, I'm very motivated. And, yeah. Because um, you've you know. achieved a lot, but you're, you're still in your 30s, right? Yeah, and look, it's there's a long way to go. And, long uh, way to go. Long and you've got a family, go. you've got to keep... That's right. It's, living in the East, I live in the East, suburbs, Adam has been this, it's fucking expensive in the East. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, there's, not, there's nothing... Uh, there's do nothing you have an Uber surge? Have you got an Uber yeah. Was there an Uber surge? Oh, yeah. That's it, like. that's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's non-stop. But no, look, I, I absolutely love the business. I've, I've been incredibly fortunate with, with our supporters and, mm. and I'm very um, motivated to, to make sure that they get a good, a good yep. result and... And, and they fulfill everything that they want to achieve in the game as well and that, that we can help them with. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm, as, I'm as hungry as ever. Yeah, and, you know. the hunger's there. That's good, yeah. Awesome. Well, um, like I say to everyone who sits on the couch with us, the den's cheering you on. We appreciate you coming on. And, um, yeah, I think people really enjoy getting to, to know you a bit better. Um, so, good luck for Christmas. Good luck with Magic Millions. Thank you very much. And, no, it's... Uh, yeah, thanks for your Let's time. Hope you find thanks. another capitalist. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. No, thanks for having me on. Yeah, awesome. Cheers. Thank you, Cheers, James. Cheers. Cheers. All right, yeah. see everyone at home. Have a great oh. uh, New Year. We'll yeah. probably drop this Merry after Christmas. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all the putters and anyone else involved in the sports and betting world. <laughs> Many winners in 2023. Absolutely. <laughs> see you later. Bye-bye. Cheers.